Good morning, everyone. Not only welcome to Crosstown, but welcome to the presence of God. You say, well, that's pretty cocky for, a, for you to claim that the presence of God is here. Look, what kind of church is this? It's like, no, whenever two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. And God is here today to help every single one of us of desperate souls. So in, on the 22nd of January, we will begin a series called Uncommon. And Uncommon, it will be an immersive uh, study, small group series that we will enter into so that we can discover the uncommon life. That as there are so many homo sapiens on this planet living out life that go same-o, same-o, that all of us have a cry in our hearts for something more, something different, something uncommon. And God wants to give it to every single one of us. So let me prepare your heart, encourage you. Starting the 22nd, we have workbooks and everything. It's gonna be like a decision on your part that you want something uncommon in your life. But leading up to it, we're gonna have week of prayer starting tomorrow at seven o'clock. On your chair, there's a little card. This has gotten all crinkly, but there's a little card that you can fill out with any prayer requests that you may have. We encourage you today that anything that's on your heart, the heart of a loved one, a situation that's out of your control, we encourage you to just write it down. You can take that card, you can drop it into one of the offering boxes. You can also at time of uh, expressions, our communion time, that you can pin it to the cross. But we want to invite you to join us. We'll start at seven o'clock in the evening. We don't do mornings around here. We just do evenings. We start at seven o'clock in the evening and we go to eight o'clock. We encourage you to join us. Be here with us as we pray over these. We pray over our nation. If you can't join us in person, we will also be online. But it will be a time when we've decided, hey God, we want to enter into uncommon living with you. We want something different out of our lives. Well, before we get into that, and you know, I was thinking about how we move forward through time and life and relationship particularly. Um, we're gonna spend a couple weeks thinking about, talking about still God. See, before all that happens, there, we, have to, we have to look at where we are with God, each and every one of us. We gotta figure out where we are. You know, instead of like just going into the uncommon life, we gotta figure out where are we at with God? Where, and where do we start? Where's the pursuit, the journey start for, for every one of us? Uh, what should we be focusing on right now in our lives in 2023? And so I was looking and, and there was one line that comes out of the Psalm that's written by David, who is a man of God, a man of the earth, a man of the flesh, but uh, somebody who gave his heart totally to God. A man who had to start somewhere because his life was so messed up. And he started with this one line and exhorted this one line to each and every one of us that this, this is the starting place. Before you go and try to morally fix your life, before you try to definitely morally fix somebody else's life, before you try to set these lofty and high goals in your life, David said this one thing, be still and know that I am God. God inspired David to speak for him and to say this one thing, be still and know that I am God. In that small little verse, there are two exhortations, two things that we're kind of commanded or exhorted to do. One is to be still, and we'll talk about that today because that can be challenging on its own, and then to know. And I thought it was really interesting, this little phrase here, because it seems to imply something that we already know, not even from the Bible, that being still invokes the potential or the atmosphere for knowing something, even God. That I think we all would agree here, no matter where we stand with God, that when you want to import some new idea, new concept into your life, if you want to get something or you want to get someone, that being still evokes this atmosphere of expectation and potential to know something. 
And I think we can look through our lives and I think whenever we want to get to know something better, we will try to control the atmosphere to still it so that we can get it. You know, I, I remember when the, when the kids were younger and you'd hear them fighting upstairs and, you know, they're arguing with each other and, you know, you might hear, you know, some heavy banging on the floor of, you know, and, and, and so you, you want to figure out what's going on. And so as, as, as a proactive dad, I would get involved with that. So I would sneak quietly up the stairs and I would stand outside, leaning against the, the wall, listening to Morgan and Deanna banter back and forth. Well, you're this, I'm you're, you're, you're. then you hear something fly across the room. It was like, well, you're this, and blah, 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 you know. And then it's like, and then kind of like sort out and understand what's the problem here? Or who's the culprit in there? Only to figure out they were both the culprit in this situation. Um, but it required me to stop to li- instead of normally I would like kick the door down, walk in, what the black is going on in here, you know, and, and just start trying to. Uh, wrestle them all up, put them in, tie them all up, and hang them from the rooftop. You know, I mean, just take control of the situation. It really wasn't that bad. Uh, but that's normally what we would do. But it took a moment of controlling the atmosphere, getting still, and trying to figure it out. How about with, with a car, when it comes with a car? Uh, I remember when I was driving, uh, test driving a used car, and uh, the, uh, as I was driving it, I was noticing there was a little vibration in the wheel, but also I noticed that the, the noise, in second gear, there was like a little noise in the engine. So I remember that I talking, to, stopping the car, and the salesperson was next to me, and I'm like, did you hear that? And he's like, no, no, because they don't hear anything. Uh, at that, you know, it's like, I'm like, no, no, I said, listen, let me get up to speed again. Okay, now I'm going to let off in the engine. I want you to hear, it's, it's not idling right. It's, it's, it's a little vibration. He's like, oh, our mechanics can fix that. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You only buy into that after you've bought the car, not while you're still test driving the car. Or when you take your car in to get it worked on, what do you do? You, you try to explain some noise, and then you get the mechanic near or in your car to hear it. And what do you do? You get quiet. Do you hear that? There's a little vibration. It's coming. I think it sounds like it's coming from underneath the car. And there seems like you have to control the atmosphere to create a potential for knowing something. Um, If you've been married for any amount of time successfully, because not all marriage is successful, you know that when you're, in my case, when your wife is in the kitchen and let's say she's making something and you're watching football, all hypothetical, I'm just spitballing here, and, she's ma- and you're watching football, and if you like it on 30, because that's the volume that, you know, I like listening to things on, on my sound bar. Uh, my sound bar only goes up to 25, so I have it up at 30, and she'll be like, uh, do you want mustard on this sandwich? I know better than to yell, what'd you say? Or... Will you come in here and tell me I can't hear what you're saying? You, know, you, just, you guys know how that would work, right? I'd have a sandwich up in the back of my head, mustard dripping down my ears. I mean, it would, it, but so what do you do? It's like, no, I need to push pause or quiet this thing down and you hear and you have a dialogue. It's kind of like implied in relationship that when you want to get to know somebody, instead of thinking in your head, at a thousand miles an hour, what's wrong with them or what they need to do, you have to tell yourself, no, I need to quiet down and I need to listen. I know a lot of you are in the medical field. And I remember there was a development, I don't know what had happened about 20 years ago, when doctors and nurses and, and medical professionals learned to like listen more to the patient. Let them talk. Even if they're saying crazy things, listen, because in the listening there is the power of knowing. I remember in the 1970s, um, it was uh, a really good time because I remember having an A-track and then we went to cassette players. But all music had a hiss to it. You know, it doesn't matter what you were listening to, everything had a in the back of it. And then there came out this new technology, this new decoding and magnetic stuff with the tape and all that that was going on in the cassette called Dolby. Now, you take it for granted now, but in the old days, it was a button you had to push that engaged 
something that would remove the sound out of music. But in the removing of the sound, there was this, like, you learned more about the music. You encountered the music even better in your life. And the problem when it comes to knowing God, as well as anything else, is that it requires us to be still. And it's not easy for us. We have been hurried by our own inventions. We did this to us. It's not in nature to hurry us. It is our own inventions. Tyler Stanton, in one of his books called Praying Like a Monk, talked about some of the things that we've done to ourselves, inventions, and I love three of them that he gave. Uh, inventions that we created that actually hurry us, that kind of create this, this moving in us, this vibration in us. The first is the clock. And I know that it really was invented by the Egyptians and Greeks and Romans and maybe even some folks before all of them. And we use sundials and water clocks to try to measure things. But you really couldn't, you know, you, first of all, you couldn't put it on your wrist. So it was really difficult, the sundial thing. Uh, you just wouldn't work. And then when the sun went down, it, it really didn't function all that well. And, and then also you could break it down to like the hour, but but we need to get into the minute, don't we? I mean, we need our days broken up into minutes, and then we need to get into seconds. So in the 13th century, there was the invention in Western civilization of the clock as we, we know it. So now we have hands moving. We have telling us where we are in time at that particular moment. And now look at us. I mean, we got, we've got this information coming to us all the time about the where we are at this particular moment. See, the clock began to meter out rhythm to us. Not nature, but the clock begins to, it's like, well, I'm late, or I'm early, or I better get going. Or the alarm says, wake up, you got a, a job to do, you got to go do something. And we, we now have alarmed ourselves, and we have this mechanism that hurries us through the day so that we get things accomplished. Then there was the light bulb in 1879. One of the inventors of it was Edison. Um, and this cut back on our sleep. Now, I didn't know the statistic, but this is amazing. It's like, this is heaven, okay? Prior to the light bulb, the average American got 10 hours of sleep a day. Can, can, you know what they call somebody who gets 10 hours of sleep a day today? A bum. Okay, you're a bum, get out of bed. But, you know, but naturally, the rhythm of nature, the rhythm of the earth, you know, something a little bit bigger than ours, than us, determined that no, for 10 hours, you just kind of went to sleep. And, but we changed all that. Now our potential for doing work has increased. It's interesting whenever you read something like Popular Science Magazine, if you've ever gotten into that. Back in the 60s when I was growing up, there was all these, these magazines like Popular Science about flying cars in 1980. You know, that we'd have all these cool flying cars and all these amazing things that we would do. There'd be like shuttle rides back and forth uh, to, the, to Mars, or there would be this giant tower that would stretch all the way to the moon and you'd just light it, ride it like an elevator and all these inventions that we'd have in 1980, let alone 2023. But it's interesting, the uh, Senate subcommittee in 1967 predicted that by 1985, the average American would work just 23 hours a week. That's it. Because all these inventions were going to increase leisure because we would get our stuff done early. Only 23 hours a week, and here's the kicker, for only 27 weeks a year. That means half the year you're not even working. But they were like, listen, if we use this technology the right way, we're going we're gonna to have ourselves some stillness time, some rest time. The, the technology worked, and it did free us up with more time. But the problem is, is what we did with it. It meant that now I can get more done. We got even busier. Then there was the iPhone. 
Oh, I love it, the iPhone. I, you know, it's, it was invented in 2007. It just feels like it's been with us all along, doesn't it? It just feels like it's always been here. But it's only when 2007, Apple introduced the iPhone. And from that day, they were tracking information about usage. And in 2016, they decided to pull all that information to figure out how much we're using our iPhones. So they discovered in 2016 that the average iPhone user uses their or touches their phone, just touches their phone 2,600 times a day. 2,600 times a day. Could you imagine what a marriage would be like if couples touched 2,600 times a day? We wouldn't get any work done, I'll tell you that. I mean, 20, can you imagine what kind of parenting we would have if you touched your kids 2,600 times a day, if you, if you had more contact? But 2,600 times a day, the average person will touch their phone. Um, and you'll be on the phone in 2016 for 2.5 hours a day in 76 sessions. You know what a session is? It's kind of like you pull up to a stoplight. Not, again, hypothetical. I'm just making this up. You pull out your phone at the stoplight. You check your email. You check your text messages. You flip through Instagram. You look at Facebook. You're looking at the green light, red light. And then you listen to the green light. You're hearing them beep behind you. That's a session. And so, you know, you go, to, you go to the little boy's room, you're pulling out, that's a session. You know, I mean, we have 76 sessions a day with our phones. You're like, this is amazing. No, that was 2016. In 2019, the study was done again, and it turned out that the average user now uses their iPhone five hours a day. People have developed um, these fake feelings that come, what is that called, Ricky? Or, um, anybody know what that, that feeling is when you get these, uh, they're, they're feelings that are not really there? Phantom, yeah, thank you so much. Phantom feelings, like, like I'll touch my, uh, my pocket um, because I think my iPhone's going off or I think I just got a text and I'll feel that little vibration in the back and then I'll be like, wow, you don't even have your iPhone on you. But your brain has developed a kit, this is time for me to touch. This is the time for me to touch. See, instead of freeing us up, our technology or our usage of technology has created a mental health condition that has been uh, uh, categorized as hurry sickness. That Americans have hurry sickness. Now, this is professionals that have said this. So I thought about it. If I'm the average iPhone user, then I wonder if I have hurry sickness. And I didn't take me very long to realize that I have hurry sickness in a big way. See, I'm the kind of guy that walks around my house looking for something to do. I'm always doing that. In holidays, we'll be, everybody will sit down for dinner. We'll have dinner. About 15 minutes into the dinner, everybody will ask, hey, where's dad? You know, and I'll be out in the backyard, like, digging a hole, you know, uh, not, I'm not putting anything in it. I'll be, I'll be checking tires. You know, hey, that's got a little bit of a wiggle to it, you know? I'll be in the garage checking ventilation going into the house. I'll just be moving around constantly. And it's like, I have a hard time resting. Um, uh, I, f- I feel inadequate doing nothing. So, well, how'd you get there, psycho? Um, it was because... When Pop would come home, and I'm not blaming it all on him, but I could see where, where it kind of started. When Pop would get home after driving through traffic, he'd come in, and he'd be tired, and he'd walk in, and the first thing he'd do, look around and say, what have you been doing today? What have you been up to? Now, what he means is, what are you doing? You better be doing something. If he came in, and you were sitting on the couch, he'd put his coat on, his hat up, he'd walk in, and he'd say, what are you doing on the couch? Get off the couch. And it's like, I was just resting, man. And I was like, no, there was this sense of urgency that you could not rest. And so when our kids come home, what, what do you say to your kids? What did you do today, honey? Instead of, how are you today? You know, it's, it's, it's just like built into our language. 
You know, husband and wives fight, and I don't, no matter who's home with the, with the kids, it, it, you know, not talking about that, it's, but usually what happens? Somebody walks in the door and is like, tag, you're it. Here's the kids. I've been doing busy. And then what happens? It ensues. Yeah, but you don't understand. I had a client today. Yeah, but you don't understand. They've been pooping all day. Well, you don't understand this. You know, and, and it goes back and forth. And what do you use your, as your ammunition? The power of your hurriedness. Who is hurried the most is the most competent human being in the family. See, we act like stillness, at least my generation, is weakness. Or maybe you view it as incompetence. Or you view stillness as laziness. Um, or, and here's even the biggest lie that all of us fall for, fall for, is that we view stillness as unaffordable. I can't afford to be still. I can't afford to take control of my activity around us. Based upon David's statement and this axiom that in order to learn or know something, you have to control the atmosphere, it is no wonder that America no longer believes that God exists. Not because of some scientific empirical evidence, but because it never stills itself enough to know God or to know anything. Dads don't know their kids. Kids don't know their dads. We don't know the people around us. We don't know things that we should know. And it's not because we have a material problem with God. It's the problem is that we just never get still enough to know still know God. See, it's not an atheistic problem. This is a Christian problem. A study was done of the habits of 20,000 Christians over five years. And after observing the behavior and the reports and the feedback of 20,000 Christians over five years, when all the data was tallied up, of what is the number one thing that gets in your way of your relationship with God, it was not porn, it was not money, it was not pride, it was busyness. Busyness just kept us from connecting with God. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, put it bluntly, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. It's like you don't need a demon if you keep yourself busy because they both produce the same results. One writer, Richard Foster, said, our souls are vanquished by muchness and manyness. Now, just let that drop into you. Just be still for a moment. I'll shut up. Boy, it feels so weird to shut up. I'm getting nervous just doing it. And matter of fact, I'm not doing it, am I? Muchness and manyness. Just think about it. What drives us? We are, we're always busy. See, in the end, we end up being good people. Most of us are good people. But we're not very deep, are we? We're really not. We're not totally immoral. But we are totally distracted. And the interesting thing is the outcome is the same. Immorality and distraction produce the exact same thing. An empty soul without God. See, I never thought of it that way before, but they do produce the same thing. So this idea of stillness is not just a little idea. It's a, it's a really important thing. And when David echoed God and said, God said to us, be still, it was important. So I looked up in Hebrew what the word be still means. And it's a couple things together. And sometimes something means a couple things, not just one thing. It, I thought of it this way. If knowing God was a scientific process, stillness would be the beaker, the flame, and the scientist. That's how powerful stillness is. Long before you 
introduce the chemical and the reaction, you would have to have stillness. That's how important it is. So be still means a couple things. It means to relax, to sink, to go limp, which I'll talk about, and to abandon, which I thought was the most powerful definition. Stillness is when we choose to relax. I think we kind of know what that, I, I, what that means. Um, stillness is when we sink into quietness. I mean, that's, now that's a little tougher, sinking into quietness. When was the last time you let yourself just like sink into quietness? Stillness is when, this is real big, we release our force of nature or control over our world. It's like, because some of us walk around with a force of nature, you know? You should see me, you should see me at the gas station. I mean, I don't do anything without, and my kids joke about it and people I work with joke about it because I'm always... I learned that if you're not busy, at least look like you're busy. Um, I saw a bumper sticker that was a Christian bumper sticker. It said, look busy, Jesus is coming back. But the idea of just looking busy, you know what's funny? There are statistics that shows that if you look like you're meaning business at a gas station, there is a lower probability that you will be robbed. So when I'm at a gas station, I, I'm, I'm at my best. I'm pumping gas. You know, you know, I do a kung fu thing when I pump, put it in there like that. I look at people when they're pulling in their car, I look at them. Yeah, I let everybody, I'm looking around the car, walking around the car. I, I'm just, it's why, it's just, you know, it's this idea of having a force of nature. But stillness is when you're willing to say, God, here's my force of nature. Here's my control over my family, over my coworkers. Here's my influence at work. Or let me phrase it this way. Stillness is when you abandon your title. That one really got me. In stillness, you're not Pastor Paul, Dr. So-and-so, franchise owner, mom, dad, wife, husband. You surrender all that. Now, let me ask you, how many times a day do you do that? Now, let me also say this. In David's equation of being still, this is not Eastern mysticism. And I know we all like yoga moments, and we all like our acupuncture, and we all like our, our uh, uh, being in the moment, being present, and all these other concepts. But this isn't being still to be empty. This is being still to know. That's the opposite of Eastern mysticism. This is quieting ourselves, not to discover ourselves, or to No, this is a quieting ourselves to know God. But you're going to have to let go of your force of nature. You're going to have to have some moments when you are not who you think you are or who you think you have to be. It is when we embrace still and God that we discover he is still God. That's not just a play on words. It's when we embrace still and we embrace knowing God, we discover he's still God. And I'm willing to bet that if you have ever questioned whether God is still God, it's not because you got some new scientific data. It's because you haven't been quieted enough to remember that he is still God. Unfortunately, stillness is not something that we always choose. Um, and sometimes it's forced upon us. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong. There may even be times, it may even be fortunate for our souls that stillness is 
forced upon us. And you're like, well, when, when would that happen? Well, it happened to us this week in a moment that we all had. In the middle of a queue of games determining who was going to go to the playoffs, in the middle of another busy Monday night football, in the routine of plays that have been run a thousand times, passes that have been thrown a million times, and tackles that have been made, over and over again in this game, stillness came. After making a clean tackle that didn't show any extreme force or impact, 24-year-old safety Damara Hamlin fell to the ground as his heart suddenly stopped. Right there in the middle of the game. And what would have been a routine injury timeout became a sudden stillness deafening when people began to realize that in all effects, this young man just died in front of all of us. Stillness fell on 70,000 people in the stadium. Stillness fell on these once Herculean gladiators of sport. Silence deafened millions of viewers like me and my wife and, and maybe if you were watching the game as we watched seasoned professional broadcasters exhale with disbelief and could not find the words to describe this moment of stillness. While a few professionals, medical professionals, moved quickly to provide aid to Damar to resuscitate him, all the rest of us were forced into stillness. It's so funny. I mean, oddly funny. There was no more, within minutes, there was no more them versus us. There was no more football players. There was nobody walking around the stadium saying, get your popcorn here, hot dogs, beer, get your t-shirt here. All that just shut down. There was nobody looking at their tickets and saying, listen, if we leave now, we can get to the parking lot. There was nobody wondering what was going to happen to their betting in Vegas or what was going to happen to their fantasy football team. Commercials awkwardly were shoved into this moment because nobody knew what to do. I mean, it was like weird. These, these commercials were just like, hey, go to break, go to break. And all of a sudden a commercial would happen and, and you were almost, you could feel how hallowed the silence was because of how sickening the average commercial was. It's like, this is inappropriate. We don't know what to do with this. That's how awkward silence is to us. Give him another commercial. Give him another commercial. Why don't we just leave the feed on? Give him another commercial. ESPN commentators tried not to cry in disbelief while offering hopeless updates. Man. But in the midst of adding up all the possible implications that this young man might have just lost his life, that we're taking on the field, some used the stillness. Be still and know that I am God. And when images like this popped up onto the screen that you normally don't see during a football game, it was just awe-inspiring. You know those casual terms, phrases we use when we're not supposed to talk about God? Our thoughts and prayers go out to Damar and to his family. They started to fall by the wayside. Screw thoughts. How about prayer? Everybody in the stillness of this moment that was forced on us realized we need God. And what's interesting, too, is, is that 
It wasn't like, we need a professional. We need a cardiologist. I don't think even anybody thought that. It was kind of like, well, there's the cardiologist and there's the trainer and there's the CPR and there's the ambulance. And everybody knew it was like, well, that, that's all good. But it's gonna take God to save this kid's life. Because we can do all that stuff and it doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work a lot. We were all moved, invited into a team moment, a brotherhood moment, a broken moment of prayer, crying out to God from the stillness. I mean, me and my wife are sitting there with tears and holding each other's hand. I mean, because the picture showed him with a little with crosses on his cheeks, and it's like, this is our brother in Christ. This isn't the Buffalo Bills. Whatever differences there may have been before the game all disappeared with the unified gathering of people seeking God for Damar. And then I witnessed something that I had never witnessed before. The taboo on TV all of a sudden became common. The forbidden became obviously necessary. The barriers to God on TV that you're not allowed to talk about all of a sudden fell before the stillness. All these civil liberty rights, all these separation of church and God, all this, all the mumbo jumbo stuff that we say, all of it just kind of bowed. And God talk just swept in by everybody. The following day on national TV, right in the middle of the broadcast, the helplessness could not be contained. Um, football gave me everything. You know, and I think even through the midst of absolute tragedy last night, I think you saw some of the beauty of football mm -hmm. as well, that it's brought us all here together. Um, you know, like, this is a little bit different. I heard, I've heard it all day, like thoughts and prayers. And you just heard Scherf and Jonathan Allen say, like, all we can do is pray for him. And I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say that like, we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want to, it's just on my heart that I want to pray for it is. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. Um, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, uh, because we believe that your God and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're, we're sad, we're angry, um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace, if we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 It's beautiful. Respectfully. We will continue to cover this story. We'll continue to bring you all the updates that we have. And as usual, we'll see you tomorrow on NFL Live. I'll just reiterate how secondary football is in all of this. We are thinking and praying, as you've seen here, for DeMar Hamlin and his family and truly hoping for some better news. How's that happen? That's ESPN. That's Disney. I mean, these are organizations that have spoken clearly about what they think about God in Christianity. But you know what? When stillness is forced upon you, it doesn't care. When desperateness comes upon you, what will you know in that moment? Be still and know that I am God. When we abandoned our muchness and our manyness, when we let go of the force of our nature and our control over things around us, it will bring us into a stillness. And there and only there 
will we know God and that he is still God? That's where we start. So this year, we have to choose stillness. Or otherwise, I will tell you this, God loves the world so much that he not only sent his son, but he will force it into a stillness so that they will discover that son. So you may be here, it's like, well, how does a good God let bad things happen? Why would he allow things to happen? It's like, well, I'll tell you what. God will not allow us to be so overwhelmed with our busyness that he will not allow the interjection of a moment like this in order to save our souls. Remember, it's not immorality that is damning us. It's our busyness apart from God that is bankrupting us. So stillness was forced forced upon us. See, this is bigger than getting to work. This is bigger, and I'm gonna say this, this is bigger than kids' soccer and kids' basketball. Okay, all right, I'm just gonna just go out there. How many of your kids are actually gonna be pros, all right? I mean, maybe you got one. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. (laughs) But what's the big picture? Usually about 25 years of age, we're all playing intramurals down at the battery with Frisbees. But what you taught was busyness, striving. It's the top ethic. Achieving. I'm all for achieving. I'm all for your kids going to an Ivy League school. I'm all for reaching our highest potential, but not bankrupt without God. Are you teaching them stillness? That's all I'm asking is, are you, having, are you showing little Johnny who can dunk the ball? Are you showing him how to be still before God? You don't have to give up basketball. But do you know what I'm saying? It's putting things in their proper place, in their proper perspective. Are we teaching our children how to be still? This is more effective than yoga. Okay, I'm into yoga. Okay, I'm, well, I'm into the twisting, you know, doing all that stuff and, you know. But if you think for a second that is going to bring God into your life, it'll bring you flexibility and you need it. But let's be honest. This is not be still and get empty. This is be still and know I am God. This will not be found on your iPhone. This is a choice of your soul to know God. In today's song, my favorite song, um, this is the air I breathe. And you know, we don't normally sing that song. Do you know why we don't sing that song? I'm gonna just tell you the uh, professional, I'm almost out of time here, don't worry. Um, I know you're in a hurry. Um, I... (laughs) You know why we don't sing this song? Not because it's not melodic, not because the words aren't perfect, but because it's too still. And most of us are nervous in stillness. Churches have abandoned songs like this because they're too intimate. The American crowd needs And I I told Ricky, it's like, yeah, I know, it's too long. He said, you know, it's eight minutes long, right? I'm like, yeah. It's like, but in the American church, it's like, no, 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 no. We got to keep it peppy, hoppy, and short. It's like, oh, okay. And in the American church, I tell you this, doesn't have God for the most part. Concept, but not enough time to know God. In the middle of it, I love it because I'm desperate for you is the words. See, most of us don't like desperate, do we? Some of you are a force of nature. Some of you are powerful. Some of you are good looking, put together. You know, 
indomitable. And what do we do? We hide our desperateness because we're in a culture that despises desperateness. But don't be, af- don't be embarrassed in desperate moments. Those are when the walls fall down. That's when we exhale and we have no inhale. That's when we don't know what to say. That's when we normally want to play the commercial. Screw the commercial. Be still and know that he is God in your desperateness. Embrace it. Carry it to God. I know you think you're important. And I know that you probably are. I know that you think you have to get your work done. I know that you think the kids come first. But none of those things, as high and lofty as they may be, will help you know God. None of them will help you know God. So we have to decide, are we going to put aside some business? You don't have to put it all aside. Just enough to get to know God. Are we willing to do this? Or are we going to wait until all of us are in a moment when stillness is forced upon us? And then what does the normal human soul say? Where's God? Why would God allow this? If he was a good God because we don't know how to handle stillness because we haven't in stillness discovered he is still God. So as we move into this moment of expressions, which is an awkward, quietish, intimate moment when we give you communion, when God gives you communion, and he offers you the body and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Can I challenge you? Some of you think you need to save your families. Some of you think you're it. You're, in the, you're the important one. And maybe you are point man or point woman. But there's got to be a place where you empty yourself and discover he is God. I know some of you are like, you just need to get up, get off the couch, get a job, work harder, man up, woman up. And I'm all for some of that. But that doesn't get you God. I can do all that other stuff you just said if I have God. So let me read you the context that David wrote. Be still and know that I am God. Because it sounds like yoga time, doesn't it? Like a perfect life. Oh, he can afford to be still. He's David. Here's the, the total psalm. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way And the mountains seem to fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. David's not experiencing a nonviolent world, a beautiful, passive world, and saying, Hum, be still and know that he is God. Yamaste. He's experienced violence, inner turmoil turmoil and contradiction, enemies fighting against him from the hill country, the earth quaking underneath him. And he says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city and the people of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fail. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar and kingdoms fall. God lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Almighty is with us. The 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations that he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear of the mighty. He burns the shields with fire. And then he says to us, be still and know I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Then David speaking for himself said, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When all hell is breaking loose inside of you, inside of your family, inside of your marriage, inside of our country, I think God laid it on my heart. We got the left fighting the right. And we think we got to meet in the middle. Well, the middle that will change America is not half of this and half of that. The meeting in the middle is stillness. We would shut up, be still, and know God. And he will be mighty in the nations. Father, as we come into this moment, we fight the greatest enemy that our souls will ever fight. And that's busyness, hurriedness, manyness, and muchness. But today, to jolt us out of it, you stand before us, represented in the bread and the cup, and say, this is my body, this is my blood. Whenever you eat and drink of this, you proclaim my death. Do this in remembrance of me and know that I am still God. Allow the work that has been wrought by the Son of God to become effectual in your soul by turning loose your force of nature, stepping out of your titles and receiving the gift of heaven. 